Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da-da-da. Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But da do 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 He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. All right, in that case, welcome to ah! number 135. Hey! hey. Um, <laughs> before before we uh, welcome to everybody, this is uh, March uh, 6, 2015. Um, and uh, before we came on, we were all, we just said hi to each other and we just started saying, hey! So we were wondering if hey. people, if we could do like hey. an hour of that and if people would like, how long people would stick with us. Um, that is the sound of a thousand podcasts. <laughs> Everyone is like click, 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 like, <laughs> like <laughs> no one is interested. They're like, that's great. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh man. Anyway, how's everyone out there? Um, uh, we are uh, buried in snow. Um, so I just wanted you guys to know that I missed my third day of that class was yesterday. Last show. Yeah. No, the, no, I know. It, it feels like it's the same thing. But just as you could put on the front page of a newspaper, um, conflict in the Middle East, and regardless of what decade it is, it's always right. Um, that is the way now. So again, I had a class canceled. And again, we were hit with a thousand inches of snow. So yes. It's a record now, right? Or yeah. is it? Uh, not where I am, actually. But oh, it is right. Up in You're Boston. not still in Boston. Yeah. Right. Boston is going to be, I think, is they've set the record that was set back in 95 or something for the most nice. inches of snow. And I think I told you guys that Rhode Island actually has run out of room to play snow. Like, the state doesn't have a little room anyway. Yeah, right? that, so I was going to say. No, yeah. So low bar. But I had this image of, like, how awesome it could be if you produced, like, a winter version of Mad Max where, like, you would have, like, border guards at each state preventing states from driving snow over their border to dump it off. You know what I mean? Like... I mean, there gets to be a point where the snow has, like, physical dangers associated with it, right? Like, I guess, theoretically, if you couldn't plow out of the way, you could be buried alive in snow, you know? like That, that actually happened. There was a news story this year about two little kids who were playing in a snowbank, and then a, a sweeper came by and, like, buried them inside, and they were there for a few hours before people realized what had happened. And, and they, they survived. They were in the snowbank yeah. for a few hours? Oh, my God. Yeah. Did they just they think it was a game, and then they were, like, immune to their mortal peril? I was going to say, like, what? <laughs> like, how did that even... <laughs> how old were these kids? Uh, just little kids, I think nine, nine to eleven years old or oh something. Oh my god! Like wow, I can't even. Yeah, that's that's wow. Because I, I was just thinking, like, I mean, what what would your how much therapy would be involved in trying to get through that process when you're just like, what do you remember in year nine? I remember white. Uh, I remember light and cold. White, cold, light. I remember a lot of that. You almost die. Well, actually, <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, what is this a metaphor for? You're like, no, it's not a metaphor. Yeah. It actually, I was in fact yeah. covered by white snow. So yeah, yeah so uh, the weather out here sucks, and um, and for Sunday, uh, we get to uh, push the clocks forward because it's obviously time for daylight savings because we're in the middle of a snowstorm. Is this getting earlier every year, or is it just me? I know that it's earlier than it used to be a couple of years ago, but is it every year now? Like it feels like they just. Why are we turning our clocks forward on Sunday, March eighth? 
Can someone explain this to me? Why because we're doing this? Con- Congress did this a while ago. This was like five to ten years ago. But what? That they made that they made mandatory daytime Halloween. They made it change right before Halloween. No, this is this is true. This was an act of Congress. Right. No, I know they, that. They made it before Halloween, and then they made it. Um, and they made it March, early March. They added like three weeks on either end of it, so that it's now like well over a majority of the of the year. And I think it had something to do with energy. It's usually about energy in some argument or another. I think it was either like in the 01 crisis or the 08 crisis or something else that the result of us deciding that a, po- a pattern like less explicable and less controlled by humans than weather should run our lives, <laughs> i.e. the economy. So, you know, that's, it's something something involving that. Because like, so. it, isn't it true that like, I, I thought I remember reading that most experts actually argue that there is no energy savings anymore to daylight savings and that it's a basically a relic from, you know, the time when yeah, we no, our time to harvest. Yeah, no, our computers smartphones like, are plugged yeah. in 24-7. really doesn't matter yeah. whether it's light or dark out. I mean, we could probably just like turn off the sun. We'd still be using just the same amount of energy, just power on those smartphones. Right, and, 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 and it's an hour also. You know what I mean? Like it's not even like a huge bulk of time that's that's going to make a substantial. So it, all it just seems to do is piss people off. And but it does have effects. It increases heart attacks uh, during this time. The heart attacks go up during the day when you spring forward for obvious reasons because people are like, "Why am I getting up?" Because everyone's late for everything. Exactly, and well, that and yeah, uh, I, thought it, like, I thought it was an hour ago. Ah, yeah. huh. you know. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, of blotting out the sun, have you guys seen Snowpiercer the movie? Yeah, in fact, I was just about to write a blog post that involved part of it. Why do you I, I've ask? heard of Snowpiercer. I've not seen it. Hello? And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's all we have to say. Well, I heard him starting to go full robot, and then he said, have you heard Snowpiercer? It's like the ring. It's like, it's like once you even mention... I that Snowpiercer exists. Yeah, I hear you, Russ. <laughs> we, we were saying, you said you're like, have you guys heard of Snowpiercer? We are like, well, yeah. he's key. they got him. They got to him. They got to him. He mentioned the code word. Code word Snowpiercer, and down goes Guberman. Oh, yeah. man. So I have not seen Snowpiercer. I have heard of it, but Story has seen it. So what is your, uh, what is it? <laughs> Okay, now uh, he's just messing I, with I caught up to it last week and I found myself giddily. Are you serious? What? <laughs> I, I, I hear you. Are you there? Hello? Yeah. Now we can hear you. Now we can hear you again. What has happened? This is real this is gold because every time you try to talk about it, uh, Storm was saying it was like the ring. Every time you try to talk about it, I just get taken out. I'm All right, talk uh-oh. about this movie. Alright, let's try again. All right. Hello. Yes. I'm talking about a movie called Snowpiercer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We hear you in real time. This reminds me of that awful day that we interviewed the Get Your War On guy. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Reliving great moments in math. All right. Go ahead, Russ. (laughs) We can hear you loud and clear. Okay. I watched (laughs) this movie. Yes. Yes, you did. And I found myself giddily yelling at the TV I love this. This is the. (laughs) Best movie I've seen that I can remember. Keep doing what you're doing, movie. Well, what is what is it? Tell me what it's about because I've heard of it. But. It's basically some Korean, uh, not known to any one of us director, managed to completely recapture the spirit of terror. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and Mad Max at the same time. Wait, 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 wait. Amazing. Uh, this is what just happened. So you're like managed to capture Bob Zero One Zero Zero One Zero Zero One. Why? I, I, is this? Oh, is there a reason you have I to go full life. lawnmower man when you're when you this happens? Like I'm sure there's a reason. <laughs> if, if, uh, if we get a phone call from everything. you telling us that you're God, then we know we're in trouble. All right. Um, so some Korean director managed to do uh, something, and then you roboted out at that point. Fuck. Some <laughs> Korean director. <laughs> this who is... we none of us have ever heard of before. Right. right. Are we still good? Yep. Am you're, I still, you're still on. <laughs> this is so much like the Hey spoof show that we were gonna do. Hey, <laughs> hilarious. Well, I, I actually am expecting Russ at a certain point to get so frustrated, he just starts going. He starts going ping, ping, like just to make sure that we're actually hearing him. Okay, so I, I'm with you. So yes. Korean director that none of us have ever heard of before, right? I can put this in Morse code if it's easier. Um, there's a. Who cares? It was good. <laughs> no, I want to hear about it now after this buildup. Uh, All right. So I was I... he managed to recapture the spirit of Terry Gilliam and Mad Max at the same time. Wow. Um, and it was a, like a per- perfectly within the lineage of those movies. And I, I couldn't believe how well it was recreated, not having been involved Terry Gilliam or the makers of Mad Max. And I was okay. like, this is amazing. So how is it? So what, what, what is it about, basically? Like, like summarize it for me in Morse code. Uh, you know those um, ice scrapers that you keep in your car? Sure. I used it today. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically it. But uh, what? Really exciting. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is it not an answer. Is, no. This is not accurate. In no. case you're wondering, yeah, tell tell me what. If there's any doubt in your mind, a story seen it. So story, you tell yes. me what the hell it's about. Maybe, and I also have a computer that works right now, so <laughs> maybe I should take the lead on talking about it. <laughs> so, so I I was frustrated by the the film. So first of all, I saw it with Alex. Alex is mad to this day that we did not walk out about 25 minutes into the film, Good and. God. I was really intrigued by the movie, but I was also like, it was really unpleasant. So the movie is an incredible mix of like probably one of the most like compelling series of metaphors for society that exists right now. And it, and it simultaneously like effectively talks about a realistic possible future at, while talking about the actual present at the same time, which was really clever. And I really liked like so many movies, I really enjoyed like the premise. I really enjoyed like a lot of what they did with it, but it is the most viscerally horrifically violent thing I've ever seen on screen by a long shot, by like a long shot. Um, and, and, and it's not just necessarily like, I'm sure you could find more like horrific and or gory movies, but there's something about just the visceral depth of the way that it's depicted in this. And I don't know if it's that you're more invested in the characters. I mean, it's in this sort of Asian martial arts style that is like, you know, it's this sort of stylized Tarantino slash Asian martial arts, like kind of um, Kill, Kill Bill meets uh, yeah, Kung Fu type of thing. You know, and, and, and meets, it's meets Sonny Chiba, for those of you who know the reference. Uh, Sonny Chiba was a 70s kung fu uh, movie star that um, was so violent that when he hit someone, it would it would cut away to like an x-ray of the skeleton being crushed. Um, so Sonny Chiba became kind of a legend among a certain subset of the uh, kung fu cinema watching people. So 
Yeah, I only know yeah. Sunny Chiba as a reference in the movie True Romance when the main character loves Sunny Chiba and goes to a triple feature where he meets Patricia Arquette. Sunny Chiba, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, okay, so it's a, it's so, like a mix. So of those that things. for me, that really and 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 to be fair, like it wasn't at least at first it wasn't wholly gratuitous because I think part of the point of the film is that you are supposed to feel the like really like there's a couple of early scenes that like were already too much for Alex. And I was like, okay, this is one of the hardest things to watch that I've ever seen on film, but it does actually serve the point and like drive home the message because it's showing like the depth of depravity and the depth of carelessness of the people enacting these acts at a certain point for me, the tipping point was reached where it was like, you know what? I get it. I get that they're really depraved and vicious acts and they will go to any level of violence to enact this, whatever. I don't need to see like seven different blood spurts and like three different limbs go every which way. And the exact moment that the person dies because of the contact with their heart that was made by the ax. Like I'm good. I, I, I received that point an hour and a half ago <laughs> and I'm okay. Like yep. no more, please. Yep. So for me, that really cut in perhaps literally to, uh-huh. The enjoyment of um, of the movie, and I think it kind of mitigated the point. The ending was also like abominable. Like the ending was like the ending w- had echoes of the last winter, which had until now like the worst ending, and was actually like almost exactly the same as the ending to the last winter of like a bad CGI animal gives you a final message, which really doesn't spoil anything, but it's just like. So I don't know. So between those two things, like, and, and, you know, meanwhile, like every third reviewer was calling it like 99%, the best film to ever grace the screen. Kind of like Russ having his computer have an aneurysm over how good it was. So, (laughs) so that was like, you know, so it didn't quite do it for me. That said, like the message, purely the premise and the message without the ending being kind of like, whoops, um, was very, very compelling and very good. But only see it if you like haven't eaten in days. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. I yeah. Well see, but this is exactly this this fits patterns of what we talked about before because Russ has commented many times that he's been, you know, highly desensitized. So not unlike the person whose taste buds have been burned away and needs to like, you know, chug a lug Tabasco sauce to get any real spice <laughs> in his mouth, I think Russ probably felt like, you know, I'm I'm from a cinema point of view alive again watching this this film. Right. You all know? right. No. And story hates all films. No, ridiculous. So that, so ridiculous. Look, like <laughs> uh, granted like I grew up watching Total Recall which involves like a guy, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger ripping a man's arms off and then like just holding <laughs> on to the severed arms for a while and like tossing them over an elevator and being like <laughs> I give you a hug with yourself or whatever he says <laughs> when he does things like that. But there are plenty of ultra-violent movies that exist, one of which I think I may have described in this podcast, which is called Antiviral, which I saw in the in, uh, downtown Independent, which was, I think, uh, Sonnenberg's or Cronenberg's kid directed this movie, and it was supposed to be his opus, and it was just the most bloody, messy gross out porn movie I've ever seen and I hated it it was it had no content at all completely on the other end of the spectrum this movie was all content and like story said all allegory and metaphor to the, the collapsing industrial society that we find ourselves in mm-hmm. and it's so brilliantly delivered uh, with a brilliant performance by Tilda Swinton and I even thought Captain America was pretty good in it so I liked all of the. This all had the Tilda Swinton and Chris that Evans. That it in was. It? I found it uh, like, yep. 
Um, I found it like I guess because I wasn't going to be phased by the ultraviolence, and I was more, much more interested in the symbolism and the way that it was presented, and just the sci-fi concept nature of it. Um, to give you a quick synopsis of, without spoiling too much, um, in an attempt to avert global warming, the world basically freezes the planet by accident with a, a chemical that they disperse in the sky. And, and this happens so quickly that is everybody with me? Did I go robot again? <laughs> you were going robot. You were doing a little bit of robot, but it was like it was getting out. It was, it was you, getting there. you yourself are now a metaphor for the industrial collapse of society. Damn and it. a metaphor for the movie. You're just like, you know, they froze the planet. I was like, wow, how meta can you get? Yeah. In an attempt to thwart global warming, <laughs> the planet inadvertently freezes. Uh, the the country of the world inadvertently frees the planet by dispersing this chemical into the atmosphere. And it happens so quickly that the only survivors of this apocalypse are the people that are on this kind of engineering wonder, this perpetual motion train that just circles the globe once a year. And so the people on this train become the remaining populace of the Earth. And they are broken up into classes. There's the people who bought first-class tickets, who them and their descendants and forevermore become like the first-class people of this new society, and the people in business class, and the people in second class, and all of the people who are stowaways on the train, who get on the train at the last minute before the world freezes, are considered to be like the lower-class, disposable class of this new society. And periodically, these people try to revolt and overthrow the society of the train. And are put down brutally by the uh, the people in power. So just conceptually, it's it's br- absolutely yeah. Brilliant. I love the idea the actually of a, of a of a snow of a train society, a society on a perpetual motion train. That's pretty cool. Um, I can yeah. do that. So that's that's the premise. And so then the movie follows the story of this current revolution that's happening uh, with uh, what's his name, Captain America, as the leader of said revolution. Mm-hmm. And it basically follows them as they try to slowly make progress car to car on the train and they slowly discover how the train works and all the mystery behind the engineering and the, this godlike figure who uh, designed the train and resides in the front in the uh, the magical perpetual motion engine um, and uh, yeah and so it, it that part is amazing and like yes the Korean director felt it necessary to adhere to like Korean martial art violence tropes but he, he weaves an amazing story while doing it it's unbelievably good I, I want to make a point having just seen this that um, this is 95% on Rotten Tomatoes um, so there's that uh, it had a budget of 39,200,000 uh, and has made uh, a total of uh, four million dollars. <laughs> it is. <in laughs> wow, words, I was one of five and a half dis- people who saw it in theaters. In it America. was a disaster yeah. financially, a complete disaster. Um, but yeah. I didn't realize that it was actually taken from a uh, graphic novel. Um, a fr- it was based on a French graphic novel, hmm. which is probably why it's so incoherent, um, ending wise story because they combine South Korean science fiction action with French graphic novel, which equals strange. Um, is, yeah, is I mean, and it's only the very end that doesn't do it for me. I mean, there's like, there's sort of like six layers of ending, and the first five are pretty good, and then like the very, very, very last part of it um, just kind of is like, oh, 
okay. Mm-hmm. That's something I guess you could have done with it. I don't know. It's one of these weird attempts to like where the obsession with I mean, I my guess, I I would be very surprised if they didn't have lots of multiple endings, but like my guess is that they sort of were getting whispers that it was going to be a box office disaster, probably because it was too violent, probably because the concept was a little bit too high-minded and like intellectual and true about what was going on, and I think that their ending was kind of a Hail Mary at like well, if we give them kind of a hopeful ending, even though, like, most of the message is you can never have hope, then, like, hooray? Um, and it, like, just missed the mark because I think all it did is, like, alienate... I mean, I don't know what Russ thought of the ending, but, like, all it did is alienate, uh, like, the people, the actual target audience, the $4 million worth of people and all the critics who were actually going to see it in the first place. Interesting. Yeah, I know that the movie had a very limited release because the first uh, I came across it when, when I was going to watch the Aaron Schwartz documentary called The Internet's Own Boy. Mm-hmm. And that was in like a very indie, sundancey movie theater mm-hmm. in on Sunset. Um, and that movie was actually made via Kickstarter because I donated to the Kickstarter campaign for the Aaron Schwartz documentary, which has since won a bunch of awards and is now like a real movie, which nice. in ti- tiny, tiny letters at the end of it, it's a special thanks to Dr. Laser Falcon, which is great. Nice. That's um, awesome. <laughs> I'm one of the t- million, a couple thousand producers of that movie. Nice. Um, but next door, Snowpiercer was playing. And so I knew immediately that like neither of these movies were going to be seen by anyone because of the limited release of the thing. But... <laughs> Yeah, I wish I'd seen it then and hadn't waited till months later. I mean, you know, like Chris Evans, Tilda Swinton. This also has John Hurt, Ned Harris. This is not a small cast. I mean, that's a, this is a pretty good, good like high-powered cast, relatively speaking. Oh, well, they spent money cast. on the cast. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a cast that is ripped right out of. Had Terry Gilliam made this movie, he would have gotten all of these same actors who yeah. are plucked right out of like Brazil or any other post-apocalyptic future yeah. dystopian movie. Now like, wait, no, no, perfect. Wikipedia- Wikipedia disagrees with the initial assessment I saw. It actually says budget forty million. It says box office was eighty six point eight million, which is considerably oh. better. So I don't know what I don't know what that first thing I was it's reading. Probably was, U.S. versus like Korea. I it guess probably, yeah, it must like, be international. Really yeah, well yeah, in yeah. Korea. That's true. Idea. It probably did like Psy Gangnam Style song sales. <laughs> you know, well in South Korea. No, would, not it wasn't a billion. It was <laughs> eighty million. That's true. Box office one quadrillion dollars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. That's all they need to do is just put psi in there, and all of a sudden, automatically. Um, yeah, I've, 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 I think I've never seen a movie tackle the subject of the human destruction of the planet in such an artful metaphor without you know without it being a documentary about water shortage or global warming or what have you. You know, it was just it was a complete allegory, but it was. Really, really well done, and also just about class struggle. You know, you don't see those two things in a in a mainstream, high budget movie very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do I should I ask? I mean, is the incredible? I mean, I guess I guess the answer depends on which one of you I'm talking to. Is the incredible <laughs> over violence a necessity to drive home the message, or is it like could they have made a relatively similar movie without like you know multiple whatever? heart decapitations or whatever the heck it is that's in there um that's that's creating the you know because that's the thing i'm always suspicious of i'm always like is it is it why is that part of it necessary since it's about climate change and not necessarily about violence per se um, i i think that they thought or the director thought that this was the only way you're going to make this very heavy-handed political message palatable to young people who are going to see this movie is if they also get the gift of all of this ultra violence that's my uh, guess 
I totally agree. I think, I mean, my, like, my um, assessment of so many movies, I mean, I cannot tell you, probably on this podcast, there's like eight of them, the number of movies that I see these days that I'm like, phenomenal premise, but they also felt the need to throw in a bunch of superfluous action that has no place in this movie, like Inception being an action movie, which is like like the least action-y, most intellectual <laughs> plot, and they're just like, but here... Joseph Gordon-Levitt, for the first time in his life, is going to do kickboxing for no reason in the middle of this movie. And I'm just like, oh, it's why? Just why? Why are we doing this? So, so I felt like a lot of it was that. Now, there were a couple of scenes early on that I think like they were establishing, as I said before, like they were establishing the brutality. And I think that yeah. like it was pretty effective at that. Um and and some of the scenes that were actually like more psychologically horrific, like there was also a line toward the end um, that was like incredibly psychologically horrific, but was not filled with any like visualization of that. Um, well, that I think go... was actually the most powerful sort of moment of violence in a way. But I think that that scene being like really horrific illustrated why they didn't need to just show all of the blood and the limbs flying as much because. It, the conceptual horror is much better and more developed than the visceral horror, but the visceral horror for me like made it actually impossible to watch at times. At, at the risk of uh, providing some minor spoilers, I kind of want to go into the the I feel like that, that story is talking about anyway. So we um, might as well. So uh, given also, no one saw this movie who spoke English, so it's fine. yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it actually, it actually, you know, showed by the way that as you guys had predicted, it made fifty nine million dollars in South Korea and another eleven million dollars in uh, China, which, by my math, means that we're up to about seventy million dollars, which means it netted about maybe sixteen million for every other country in the world, including the U.S. So I think right. we're, I think we're all there. And apparently, the guy is. Did you say this, Russ? Did I miss that you saying that that uh, the guy actually the u.s guy wanted him to cut some parts and he didn't oh, want I to didn't, do it yeah that, that he he wanted to cut some parts and he refused to cut it and so there was a big delay in where it ended up um and so that that explains why it's such a limited release um and it was also would explain why it made one hundred seventy one thousand dollars in the u.s opening weekend which is <laughs> for the record not very good um but well, that's good. what well, happens since i it, guess so. uh, by by default we're now like american ambassadors of this movie <laughs> yeah. that nobody saw yes there you go um, <laughs> Yeah, I'll describe this one scene that Story is talking about because it's really powerful and it's very early in the movie um, where they're basically establishing the brutality of the, the train regime who is in charge of these stowaways um, and Tilda Swinton as sort of the propagandist for the first class comes to the back at the at news that there was some, you know, possible troublemakers in the back of the train. And uh, so this one particular troublemaker like throws his shoe at this lady who's in first class and it hits her and she's very insulted. And so as a punishment for this, they take him and they no, stick. I have just, I have just recently eaten. So, you know, I just want to make sure right. it's in the story. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. All it's right. Okay. All right. So they take him and they uh, stick his arm outside the window of the train, which of course is traveling at high speed through this frozen world. And they put a clock on, around his neck which is symbolizing like how long it'll take his arm to freeze solid and so for the seven minutes and i think it was actually pretty much done in real time yeah i think while so. 
while they have his arms sticking out the window and he's coming to the realization like maybe he can't feel anything anymore because it's already gone numb but he's coming to the realization that his arm is slowly going dead Tilda Swinton gives this speech to the back class of the train about their place on the train and why first class has always been first class and will always be first class and that's the order of things and she puts the shoe that he threw on his head and she said you know would you wear this shoe on your head no you wear a hat on your head. We are the hat of this train, and you are the shoe of this train, and know your place. And it's just this, it's, it's really amazing. And then, of course, at the end of her speech, they take him, they take his arm out of the thing, and they smash it with a sledgehammer, and it disappears. And that's, it's that's, awesome. That's, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then there's a line later where they don't show anything or they don't illustrate it, and there's this sort of closing soliloquy we're nearly closing. This is one of the like four pre endings that are all amazing before the actual ending, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> and that where there's like, you know, it's basically the, yeah, we're just spoiling this movie. It's fine. So the, the guy and the, the guy who leads the revolution in the back has like finally fought his epic struggle all the way to the front of the train against all possible odds. And then you learn, of course, that the reason that he did it against all possible odds is because the commander of the train wanted him to, and he's dying and he sees the, this person as his natural heir apparent as someone who has seen every part of the train and traveled the whole train. And then he's talking about why, um, you know, he's trusted all of his comrades and allies, even as the leader of the train is saying that like a third of his confidants were in on the inside and were working for the order of the train and all of this stuff. And he's like, I can't possibly believe you and all of this stuff. And he's talking about his real emotions that he's almost lost through all of this violent struggle. And he's talking about where he came from originally in the lower classes that he would that he had eaten babies and that he had taken people's babies from them to eat them because there was such a massive shortage of food and protein. And the way he describes this scene where he's doing this and this is a matter of course and then he was involved in this, um, nothing is shown and nothing is described, but it's by far the most like psychologically gripping and um, difficult part of the movie. And like, I wish, I think they could have very easily just aired more on that side because I think far more is accomplished in that scene as far as establishing the horror with a point without just like literally showing you stylized blood flying yeah, around, yeah, yeah. um, than was ever shown in like the, the Kung Fu scenes. So. But just the meaning of that scene, the notion yeah. that like, even if you lead a total, what you consider to be a justifiable bloody revolution against an oppressive government, it's like on the way to mm -hmm. successfully completing that revolution, have you completely lost your humanity because of the acts that you had to commit? And is it, so, and ultimately is any of it worth it by the time right. can you then like whatever society you're going to establish or whatever regime will you establish? Will it justify all the horrific acts that it took to get there? That's interesting. And it's uh, actually, you know, the scene that you just described is reminding me of the scene from Apocalypse Now where um, where Kurtz, Brando's character, is describing uh, being in Vietnam when uh, the special forces came back to the camp. Do you guys remember the scene where he's talking about um, they uh, we went in and we inoculated uh, we, you know, inoculated all the children. And then they came back and hacked off all the inoculated arms. Mm -hmm. and, and he talks about how like you know and i just saw the genius of it like and then it's and it's you know typical over the top brando yeah. like a right. like a 
diamond in the center of my forehead, you know, and meanwhile, like Martin Sheen is freaking out and Dennis Hopper is randomly there for no reason. Um, but uh, yeah, but it's reminding me a little bit of that. And of course, that's to me, the great filmmakers have understood that the horror comes from what you don't show. That's that's why right. Psycho, the original Psycho, is far more frightening than any of the gore that follows it. Um, you know, so but anyway, that's that's. Yeah, it's interesting. But I'd, yeah. lo- I'd love to see them at least take a shot at doing a film that doesn't, you know, that shies away from... Because it sounds like it wasn't like they were going to get a lot of... I don't know how to describe this. It sounds like, it. Like why would they need to appeal to people on the sort of I need more ultraviolence when it was clearly a film that was not going to have a mass market appeal anyway? Like were they, were they I don't think like they shave thought off that was a couple true, of hundred though. people... You know, and that was going to be the end. Like I that, think you know? I think that they thought it was going to be like one of the top three movies of the year. I really do. I think that they thought they were making a masterpiece that would appeal to everyone and would be like a game changer like Inception. And because of all of these like edits and because of the way that it hit people, it, they just fell short of that. Ah, okay. But, but especially given the critical acclaim and how much... I mean, and I remember there were reviews that were saying like, it is appalling that America is not like that not everyone in America is watching this movie movie right now and like it's an important film and i think that they thought they had something like an inception or an avatar or whatever on their hands and they have you know i mean a lot of the pieces but i think it was that directorial you know and that i think is the only way they got to this ending where the train blows up and literally two people survive and the implication is and then they see a polar bear which means that there can be life and then these two people go on in the hope that like a polar bear, they can survive. I'm a polar bear too. In the future, yeah. <laughs> and th- yeah. these are like the new Adam and Eve of the new society. And so, despite the fact that we've learned that like humanity is totally infinitely corruptible and that there's not much hope and that we're going to destroy everything, suddenly we get a polar bear and two people who are the, like the most innocent well, two characters in the whole movie I, to go start again. Yay. I don't know that, that it was a hopeful ending, though. I mean, the hopeful ending may have been sans humanity. Like, maybe these two people survive, but that two people are not enough to repopulate anything. Oh, and I don't so... think that was the implication. It was one man and one woman. You can't, you with, can't with give me that. With a polar bear. Come and on. There's an arc. There's an Come arc. on. <laughs> I mean, I I think guess... you're seeing what you want to see, Gooby. I guess that's the message. But also, I think it was the more important takeaway from that was that without the meddling of humanity because humanity had been stuck on the train for however many generations that will recover yeah the planet was going to heal itself and so the planet would be okay even if humanity ultimately was going to cannibalize itself like kind of regardless of what happened well it wasn't the point that you couldn't you know the earth had been destroyed by this terrible apocalypse and so the idea was you couldn't ever stop the train and it's like once once you did get off the train, then all of a sudden it was like, wait, your your sort of hubris is what made you believe that you couldn't ever survive. Like that, you know, there was a hubris sort of on the other direction that you just gave up and you're like, well, yeah. I might as well just get sucked into this like perpetual motion class based, you know, garbage, whatever. As the people to on train. the train um, obviously had built up a brand new religion and mythology around the train. And so it was believed that it was the only source of human survival. It was a completely closed and perfect ecosystem that replenished itself and that theory uh justified all kinds of other brutality that happens in the movie um and then yeah so ultimately when it's derailed and according to that mythology that's the end of mankind then you know at the end of the movie it gives you a possibility that it's not even though it probably still is it's you know <laughs> anyway right. i'm looking at the critical response thing uh, this 
I hate to say this as someone who, as you know, has been doing as a critic myself for theater, has been doing it for a long time. But as I'm looking at like the critical response things and listening to you guys describe it, I do wonder sometimes if there aren't a lot of critics that just don't actually see the film and just get a couple <laughs> of things and then like write about it. Because like, like listen to this stuff. Like, Snowpiercer offers. Uh, no, let me do the let me do the specifics. Snowpiercer sucks you into a strange, brave new world so completely. Okay, that that one I guess is not so much. Uh, New York Times, uh, planetary destruction and human extinction happen a half dozen times every summer. It's rarely this refreshing, though. Um, let's see. Uh, Ball grabs on to the grungy... Conve- Snowpiercer is a headlong rush into conceptual lunacy, but you'll love it anyway. Bong grabs on to the grungy, Bong is the director, grungy conventions of post-apocalyptic adventure with relish. He serves up claustrophobic action scenes and ominous messianic, uh, messianic overtones as the band of rebels makes its way forward. Don't miss it. This is enormously fun, visionary filmmaking with a witty script and a great international <laughs> cast. The beautifully designed train is one of the most memorable in screen history. D- does any of that sound like it's touching on what you guys like? Fun? It's a rollicking. There's that's the like the, that's like the Polar Express, just... but in th- like you yeah, know, yeah. Like, with the re- like really. Fun should not belong. I mean, even its most ardent <laughs> defender, which I think is Russ, like would not. Fun would be about four hundred and seventieth on a list of words that I would come up. All with. right. That being said, I was yelling at the TV about how much I liked what the TV you was more. presenting That's to me true. at the time. I was like, "Thank you, TV. Please keep doing this." It's been uh, so long. Bracing and liberating thing about Junho Bong's Snowpiercer <laughs> is not just its lyrical forward motion, but the exuberance with which the film revels in its plot predicament. Like, if I read this. I'd be like, this is like, ha- like it's a happy or like you know a, a sort of like I don't know. It's so it's crazy Mary Poppins work. after yeah. the apocalypse. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like you know, like what the hell? Like uh, not maybe so they were much. just taken in by the ending too much. They were like, look at the polar bear. They lived. The and then all of a sudden, it smoothly live. goes into his dark materials. It just goes yeah. straight and into then the that. Polar and the polar bear grabs a Coca Cola yeah. in its paw. Exactly. And it goes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That would have been the only thing that would have made it worse. <laughs> it's just like, yes, your corporations will save you. Like, pay, pay no attention to the rest of the film. Oh my gosh. So you, so that's hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. But so you liked it, story, except you just thought it was way too violent to sort of, you know. Yeah, and I mean it. Def- and I also had the experience of like, you know, talking about it with Alex sucked. afterwards, who was like screaming at me of like, I can't believe we didn't leave, and like twice like tried to pull me out, but I was mesmerized. I was like, no, I can't. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like I like I really want to know where this ends up and what happens because it is a really compelling narrative, but like, and then polar it's bear. also almost <laughs> impossible to watch. So, um, yeah. So like the ending and the violence were like really both very difficult, but Alex insists it's the worst movie she's ever seen. So, wow. and I think it's entirely about the violence. Like I tried to talk to her about some of the point and it was just like, but how once the la- next, the axes, no, after the axes. <sighs> um, so yeah. Which, like, is an effect that people reasonably have from some of those things. Right, like, and I've... Just I've, people who cannot do gore, and, like... That's and I kind of consider myself on the cusp of that, you know? Like, there are certainly things that... So, I don't know. I, just, I mean, it up. might be, though, it might be a combination of both the physical brutality and the psychological brutality of something that kind of faintly reflects a uh, fascist first-world society, like, within, yeah. you know the movie tropes it could also be disturbing to people who don't like thinking about their world their own world that way that is definitely true i suppose i mean i i don't i'm i'm in the camp of not of hating i hate gore and i don't you know so 
<laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you guys have now summarized it for me because I'm, I'm not going to see if I just did not yeah. do it. Yeah, um, no, I, don't I, think I was you, I was like... repulsed by Natural Born Killers, for example, which some people think is brilliant. And I think is 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 an abominable schlock. Um, that was also very much violence for, for violence sake, that movie. That yeah, just, and that, yeah. that Natural Born Killers pissed me off because it was this this theory about like, you know, satire. And, and I was like, yeah, when it's not clever. Um, and it fails as satire, it doesn't work just because you say it's satire. You know, it's like it's like people who, you know, who are like, uh, you know, I'm not being racist. I'm being ironic when I drop the N-bomb. No, you're not. Right. I don't care how hipster you are. When you drop the N-bomb, you're being racist full stop, regardless of the irony that you're supposedly investing it with. Um, I actually saw on, on some other uh, some other page recently someone saying, uh, you know, uh, no, please, no racism, sexism. And then in parentheses, not even of the ironic kind. And I'm like, we've arrived at the point where you need to specify that like, no, any use of the N-word in this case will be bad, even if you then go like, lol, or smiley face, or, you know, like, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, it's, it's you know, still going to have that same effect. So, I don't know. Um, it's It sounds, it just, what but what I think is unfortunate is it sounds like a really awesome concept. Why I just... I wish, although I don't like post-apocalypse stuff that much anyway, but that's that's just my thing. I mean, that's not because I think it's bad. I just don't particularly care for it. Um, but it seems like so cool conceptually. Uh, it's it's so sad then that it has to be like married to this. Because the point is about climate change and about, you know, I mean, I guess it's also about human brutality from what you guys are describing. But Yeah, it is. Uh yeah. yeah, it's about it's about man being a tool for his own destruction and, you know, having to to make a society and to make this thing that some people are revering and calling this perfect ecosystem or this perfect mechanism or whatever, like underneath the surface is always unbelievable levels of brutality that you would never think would justify what you what you have. Interesting. And to me, that's the takeaway of the the metaphor of the movie. Interesting. Yeah, it said uh, Tilda Swinton said that um, after every film, she says she's not going to do another film unless she has. Um, uh, she's not going to do another film unless she has something where she can have lots of fun. And so this is a film where she can have lots of fun. And again, it's like, like you just said, like, is that fun? Like, I'm sure she had fun. I believe that. I believe that Tilda Swinton had fun. Okay. Yeah. Her, her role was probably the most fun that you could have. Uh, <laughs> also, like... Tilda Swinton's idea of fun is probably everyone else's <laughs> idea of pain anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Like, let's, let's remember be that Tilda Swinton voluntarily um, for a little while was a traveling art exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art where she would sleep in a glass case for about eight hours and people would just come in and look at her. And that was fun for her also. Hmm. So. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, interesting. What, Your what, personal preferences time. and intuitions may differ from Tilda Swinton's. <laughs> they may. I'm not sure. It's conceivable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, did you guys? Speaking of that, um, I did not. As as has been my wont, I have not watched one second of the Oscars in over a decade. But I'm curious if you guys uh, saw any of the Oscars or had any thoughts about um, about films. All this of is which... the f first one I've watched from beginning to end have ever. Really? I think. Okay. Ever. Okay. Really. Ever, I I mean, it went to. I basically felt bad. I hadn't been seeing my friend, and he was having an Oscars party. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll smoke weed and make fun of it, and I'll get through it. And that's what happened. 
<laughs> so, it is, so, it is, <laughs> so there you go. Had you guys seen any of the films that like? Did you guys see this Birdman film or what? Like, yeah, this this was also the first year that I'd seen like a majority of the contenders for various winning things because Stephanie gets uh, these screeners sent her since she's a member of SAG, and so we watched almost all of the major contenders for a lot of these awards, and so I really knew a lot about going in. Okay. I saw most of them. Stuff. I have not seen Birdman. I want to now. I, w- I initially had no interest. When I saw the preview, I was like, that looks like the most pretentious, idiotic, self-aggrandizing movie I've ever seen. And then it won, which probably should not allay any of these perceptions about it, but now no, I'm at least terrific. curious. To make it's an educated great, guess about it. Great movie. I, if I wasn't so, if I, I'm like, I did not yell at my TV about how much I like Birdman, <laughs> but I enjoyed it quite a bit. From what I know of the film, it makes <laughs> I am not at all surprised that you like this film, Russ. I think it. I think it's sort of yeah. It, it combines it, it like at least four different themes that I'm a big fan of. Like, and Michael Keaton, and it yeah, combines it was Michael, Keaton, Michael too. Keaton. It was metaphysical. It was like. Uh, it was a very meta movie and self-critical and it kind of a movie that made fun of movies and I was like, yeah, strap me in. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do this. All right. Metaphysical is the only appealing word that you mentioned there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I still want to see it just because I want to be able to criticize it more accurately. Like, I just, I think, I mean, and maybe it's good. Maybe it's really good. I don't think it's better than Boyhood, but maybe it's good. I don't know. Boyhood. I I couldn't Boyhood. You can't stand Boyhood. Boyhood was a transcendent movie. It Boyhood was a movie. Tears. Get out of town, dude. Just it get did. out of town. You <laughs> any movie that is longer than like like eighteen seconds is something that you will immediately be like boring. Unless like somebody's is arms are flying off. Like, I'm sorry, Russ, but you are actually like a twelve year old boy. Like your movie taste, like you are a twelve year old boy with a hyper intellectual sense. Like All right. you tell me how many twelve year old boys like the movie Koyanis Katsi. That's what I wanna know. Just a bunch okay, of that montages one does seem to set defy to music. some of your normal <laughs> sensibilities somehow. But like honest to Christ, like here's my problem. Like I get, I get why people liked Boyhood. Here's my criticism of Boyhood. It was more about the conceit of I'm gonna make a movie over this kid's life than it was about writing an arc for a character or having things happen. It was, and I think another kind of weird consequence of making a movie over 12 years of a bunch of actors lives is that you don't have the opportunity to get all the footage you want because they're doing other projects and they're busy and you're just getting them when you can get them and then you're trying to piece together what you have while everybody's living their lives and I feel like there was a lot of things that were used that would never be used in a movie because it just wasn't clean it it was like not great improv that they were doing but they used it because Patricia Arquette was in the middle of doing like her TNT show or whatever and they got her for a week to do more boyhood and that kind of I thing. I could not agree with you less if I tried <laughs> to. So I think, first of all, you have more footage than you will ever have for a movie in the history of movie making because you have t- you've been filming like the equivalent of probably 14 to 18 movie shoots in terms of total time. And I think all of those things were deliberate because so boyhood for me was a completely transcendent experience. And maybe you just never get out of your critical brain enough to have these experiences 
experience is like even when you're enjoying a movie you have to constantly be telling yourself that you're enjoying the movie <laughs> all the example you just gave of like keep doing this because i am excited because i am so in my own head about an artistic experience well, that i'm not actually in it you know what it I'm reminded only- me of for just a second, it reminded yeah. me of him the, the the thing where he was yelling about how he got so frustrated at Richard Dreyfus in um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he's sitting in front of his potatoes and he's like, "This makes sense. I get it. I understand now." Like I had this image of you doing that, but on steroids. Like, yes, I am immersed. I get it now. I am but immersed. You, but- but by the very nature of doing it, he's never immersed. So for oh, right. me, Boyhood was transcendent because at a certain point fairly early in the movie, it was no longer a movie. It was just a, the life of possibly me, somebody I knew well, something like that. And I was just completely immersed because the movie did so many things that no other movie ever does because it wasn't trying too hard to be a narrative plot or a movie or whatever. It was just fucking life. And it was the most realistic depiction. It did 75 things that no other movie does because it was just trying to be realistic, but it wasn't a documentary and it wasn't trying to be a documentary. It was just like, this is what it's like. It was just, it was a perfect documentary despite being fictive of what it has been like to be alive in the last 20 years in this country. It was amazing. And it was totally transcendent because it did it in a way that if you suspended disbelief for more than two seconds, or if you're capable of suspending disbelief, and certainly like this reflects a lot of testimony that other people, especially people who were the age of the boy depicted, have said about it, they had the same experience where it just was no longer, it was just like, it was about everyone who watched it and it was about what it's like to live in this country. And, you know, I think in some, in many ways, like as a metaphor, like it achieves the same kind of things that you like Snowpiercer for, but did it in a much more sort of elegant way because it made people feel like it was them without even like having to pull artistic strings. Yeah. It was transcendent. It was just okay. transcendent. And I am not a like Ethan yeah. Hawke and Patricia Arquette are not my favorite actors in the world. I like some movies that they're in, but I don't love their work in them. And Boyhood was no different. Mm-hmm. I'm noting as I'm looking over this page, the nominees page, it is indicative of how far I have fallen out of the film uh, interest at all that I uh, saw a grand total of three of these nominees in all categories. Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and there's what? one other. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's one other. Really? There's one other. Oh, and also the Lego movie. Yes, I saw that too. Never having children. <laughs> That's Never it. having children. That's it. That's what. I saw nothing yeah. else. I saw none of these other ones. I had actually never uh, heard of them. I don't. What is the Imitation Game? I don't. I don't. Never oh, heard of any Imitation of Game was amazing. It's the story of Alan Turing, the man who invented the computer and was persecuted for homosexuality after oh. being a national war hero. Okay, that's cool. Amazing movie. Uh, I, mean, I think in general, the crop of movies, like whatever Russ and I feel about Birdman and Boyhood, was was far superior to the average quality. Year like you picked a oh, bad yeah. year to not see anything. I think, Greg. Yeah, I, the I Stephen really Hawking guess, movie so. was totally, totally good. I, I still want to see that. I haven't, I haven't that seen. Was a good movie. It. I want to. I mean, my only argument after watching the Stephen Hawking movie was that Daniel Day Lewis did this better when this movie was called My Left Foot. But other than like, clearly that wasn't explicitly about Stephen Hawking. So Stephen Hawking can have his movie too. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like. It's, yeah. I mean, it is an easy vehicle for a Best Actor award. Mm-hmm. They're like, how can you pretend that your limbs don't move? We don't understand. It's amazing. Yep. It's, it's, like, it's like the year that my left foot wanted this at the risk of uh, irritating Russ. 
when my left foot won, which was the biggest abomination that it didn't go to oh. Red Williams and Young in Dead Poets Society, who clearly oh, should have okay. won it. Okay. Clearly should have won it. I mean, That's it's nothing fine. against Angie Lewis, but all, literally it was just like, hey, I can't move. I'm in a wheelchair, but I'm actually normally able to check out my acting <laughs> talent. And Daniel Day-Lewis is a brilliant actor, but not because he can sit in a wheelchair. Okay? Like, I... I just uh, was so frustrated. Mostly because Dead Poets Society got screwed. So um, yeah. I see that J.K. Simmons, who's on Law and Order a bunch, actually won the Best Supporting oh, Actor. Whiplash was yeah. phenomenal. Whiplash also. was really good. Yeah, that really was very good. good. Russ and I agree. That I was know, very I, good. I, what? I am just so. <laughs> there was no violence film at all anymore. There was no anime in Whiplash, and Russ liked it. How is this yeah. possible? <laughs> oh, I guess there was some violence. Never. Mind. I guess it was, was exactly violence. ninety-two minutes. So yeah. you didn't have time to get minutes. bored. Just yeah. enough violence for There was us, a not lot of drum beats and a little bit of yelling. That's how to get bored. <laughs> I have no. to say that, like, I actually, uh, just looking at this too, of the th- of the three films grand total that I saw here, I only actually liked uh, two of them because I didn't particularly like Guardians of the Galaxy. So I-, I ended up with Captain America: The Winter Soldier, which I actually thought was good, and uh, and Le- the Lego Movie, which you know was also I thought surprisingly clever, and that was that was it. Like, I mean, I don't... Yeah, you also didn't see, like, any of the top 20 movies. Like, those no. are the movies that barely tripped into, like, a nomination for sound. I know. Like, oh, yeah. No, I Those are not, like... Yeah, I agree with highlight, you. Even The, the you Good know. Girl, which I would never have seen if we did not have a screener for it, because it's, like, uh, The Gone Girl. Thank you. You mean Gone uh, Girl? Gone Girl, like, yeah, because it's The Good Whatever. Because it has Ben Affleck as the lead, and I'm like, like, this is not... Ago. Even that was, you know, captivating. Gone Girl was disturbing. awesome, Yeah, but it was good. Yeah. So you guys actually feel like there's a uh, there's a there's a future for Hollywood. Hollywood can move away. I don't know from... if there's a future. There's a present though. The present was well, really the, good. The funny thing is that Birdman, the movie that won Best Picture, was basically in addition to being just qu- really high quality writing and a great ensemble. And it has cast, Ed Norton, so automatically you like it, mm-hmm. right? But it really what it really was was just a movie that makes fun of all of the movies that you just described that you saw. Like that's all Birdman was. It was like and all anyone ever sees anymore is the Lego movie and Captain American Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, here's our critique of the society in which that happens. Interesting. Like that's what Birdman is. So interesting. Yeah, it's um I don't know, you know, I, I just I well part of it too is that I, I've never I've never been a big, big film guy, to be honest. I, I I've I don't particularly you know, everyone enjoys the experience of being immersed. I, I don't really. Um, I, I don't like the experience of being completely really. Up. Yeah, not not so much. I, I don't like being caught up in something. Yeah, I think it has something know to do that story. Control, this is why he gets know? to level twelve as a wizard in Dark Age of Camelot, and this then decides that he's getting too immersed yeah. and quits. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. I don't really like that. I don't this really like. This is why you're immune control. to all these addictions. Yep. It's because you don't actually like the only reason that Russ and I pursuit is <laughs> to be immersed no not so much i i do sometimes feel i mean i i certainly am conscious sometimes when i'm you know reading a novel that i can you know get sort of but even yeah i mean that was my in, next question you're a friggin writer yeah like, yeah like in, in writing in writing in writing reading and writing is a little different i do that but i think that's because there's always been like a there's like a there's an aspect of it that i'm sort of a, is a step way like for example um i haven't seen uh ender's game and a big part of that is that I now can't, I can, I loathe Orson Scott Carr. I, I shouldn't say that. Well, yes, I can. I loathe him. The guy's, a, okay. Like, I mean, the guy's, the guy's a bad guy. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, he's a bad guy. And it's gotten to the point where, although I do separate the art from the artist enough that I still teach it in my science fiction course, because I think it's an important book, 
Um, I, I don't really think I'm going to drop more money in his pocket. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. And it was kind of a box office sure. flop. And that's, that's good. Um, but the other reason is, I mean, there are things described in that book that don't really phase me when I'm reading about them because I'm reading about them in a comfortable office or in, you know, mm-hmm. a Starbucks or, you know, whatever. And I got my nice glass of water next to me and it's warm and sunny, you know, and, and there's a difference between that and being just sort of, I don't know, like, like dragged into it. It's it's like, uh, and actually this is a good example. This is actually something because of the video game thing, this might be a good topic for us to, to spend the last portion of the show on because I, I had this discussion with people over at um, the uh, other side entertainment um, for so actually story. will know this and Russell know it a little bit. Um, Looking Glass Studios story that did Thief. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're doing Ultima Underworld 3. They're basically doing Underworld Ascendant, which is the third of the Ultima Underworld series. Same okay. guys. And I actually interviewed Paul Nurath, who was the guy who was the developer um, in the charge of the studio that did Thief and Thief 2. So I was thinking about cool. you a little bit because obviously you and I share God, a similar I love, love for that game. Yeah, Thief yeah. Deadly Shadows was great too, and I also I that, Thief was all about the immersion. Well, right, like, so I'm, I'm getting back to that. Like, I'm getting yeah. back to that. I'm getting back okay. to that. So I'm getting back to that because that's that's exactly right. the point. So, um, so I, I was looking at that, and they were talking about how this new game. They're like, oh, look at how this Thief, and they were bringing up System Shock, which is a mm-hmm. game that Russ, if you haven't played, you should try to play System Shock either one or two because this mm-hmm. is up your alley uh, on a spaceship with a rogue artificial intelligence with like incredibly scary and like immersive and uh, you know everyone says awesome not a chance in hell i will ever play it but it's definitely the kind of game that you would like because it's mm-hmm. it's an objectively good game from what everybody says it's just not my thing um but anyway so these you know these guys know what they're doing and they said one of the things that people were talking about with the sort of old school gamer was like yeah and this is great because you know and there's there's no there's no moment to settle down there's no moment to take a breath it's just full tension from the beginning to the end and i'm like yeah you know i'm not really in love with things where I can never take a breath and I it's always tension from beginning to end and I was having a hard time trying to figure out why someone would willingly want to be nothing but horrified all the time you know like I understand the importance of having like rises and falls in tension that's just good writing and storytelling but having nothing but just like the equivalent of the movie Crank, except it's just scare, scare, jump scare, jump scare, horror, horror, jump scare, gore, gore, scare, heart well, beating a thousand times a minute. Like, really, to, do people like that? Is that is to that defend really what these want? these franchises for a second? Sure. Um, and again, I can't believe that I'm about to do this in in rebutting a fantasy fiction author. Um, <laughs> but I feel like the notion of escapism is that you feel like your life is unsatisfying in some way or or you know not stimulating enough in some way and so you look to these mediums of entertainment to provide you with the experience that you can't get in a modern urban kind of buttoned down corporate world and so hmm. you get you look for these near death experiences because there's nothing in polite society that would ever get you near those or at least if it did you'd prefer to do it from the safety of your own living room where you know nothing will really happen and so you can just sort of scare yourself and simulate the experience and i feel like that's exactly why people love fantasy fiction so much and why they love why and why our country in particular is so obsessed with like a vampire movement after zombie movement after dragon frodo movement is because as life gets sort of crummier on a day-to-day basis people look more and more towards these sort of fantasy genres as a form of relief and escape from from their daily lives i don't think I yeah. think that all of these fall under that umbrella. 
That's that's interesting. I mean, you know, for well, for one thing, I guess part of what I would object to is that I don't really think I mean, certainly there is an element. There's no question there's an element of escapism there. But I actually think that the best fantasy um, actually resists escapism. And what it's actually doing is um, focusing us back in a way that we can better receive it. Um, the you know the mirror kind of of our own society and it's it's actually really interesting that you bring this up because um, I'm going to completely abandon what I was going to talk about with the game and go into something which will be more interesting I think um, because there was an article that recently came out in salon.com um, with a woman whose name is Laura Miller um, who was one of the co-founders of salon.com has been a writer for them for a long time Rever- um, and it was she was reviewing um, Tomoaki Ishiguro's latest uh, novel. This guy wrote Remains of the Day, you know, that, that, that guy. So he wrote this novel, which I have to find uh, the name of it now. Um, but it was, let's see, Burn the Dragon? What the hell is it called? Um, don't fail me now, Chrome. Uh, it <laughs> was uh, blah, 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 blah. Yes, The Buried Giant. Um, the Buried Giant. And um, Kazuo Ishiguro, not Tomoaki Ishiguro, sorry. Um, Kazuo Shiguro, who wrote the who writes the Berry Giant, and in Salon.com, um, Laura Miller um, writes uh, this article saying, "Dragons aside, Ishiguro's Berry Giant is not a fantasy novel." And here is the argument. I'm just going to summarize the two best things. I think you guys will know where I'm going with this in a minute, and it's going to tie right back into what I think fantasy ought to actually do. Um, <laughs> she says, um, "Quote." Despite what you might read elsewhere, this is not a fantasy novel. It has very little of substance in common with Game of Thrones or The Lord of the Rings. Yes, creatures like ogres and dragons stalk its landscape, and some of the characters knew King Arthur personally. But fantasy is a contemporary genre that uses the form of the novel to deal with the material of pre-novelistic storytelling. The Buried Giant reverses that formula, using the structure of a medieval romance to explore the moral and psychological themes we're used to seeing addressed by the realistic novel. This may seem like an obscure and technical distinction, but it makes all the difference between savoring the riches of this peculiar book and being blindly flummoxed by what it lacks. With feeling, Ms. Miller, because I went off (laughs) as well on Twitter, um, first of all, when you're going to use a a profoundly ridiculous phrase like pre-novelistic storytelling, which is what a low-level graduate student does when trying to impress his fellow graduate students in a class, um, keep in mind that you will be called out on it when people say, interesting, because a lot of fantasy novels actually don't deal with pre-novelistic storytelling. By the way, the subtext for that is stories that we wrote before we grew up and wrote novels that are not fantasy, right? That's what she's actually saying. Um, and then the second part, which is even more, not only blatantly offensive, but ridiculous, is that you need a regular mainstream novel to explore moral and psychological themes. You know, because John Gardner's Grendel does not address moral and psychological themes. That book is just about, you know, straight up escapist fun about a guy who references Nietzsche and Sartre and talks about, you know, the humanist experience and makes constant reference to academic study the last 50 years. Clearly nothing going on there. That's just a bunch of bubblegum pop fantasy, right? Uh, The Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, those are the two only representative fantasies that we possess, right? There's no other fantasy that's tried to do anything kind of different. We can't think of anything that talks about modern political themes, like, for example, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaiden's Tale. That has nothing to do with any kind of real fantasy novel, right? Clearly 1984, not even remotely a fantasy novel and not no science fiction there. Animal Farm, in no way is that an allegory for anything. I mean, are you joking me? What garbage. 
And, and what that is proof of is a mainstream novelist who read a book and liked it and then went, oh, crap, this is fantasy and I'm not supposed to like fantasy. Um, I will write an incoherent screed in which I talk about this book, which is obviously fantasy, and show how it isn't. Do you want to know what this non-fantasy book involves? It is set against the, bre the uh, backdrop of, and I quote, the breath of an ancient she-dragon living up on a mountain, which has covered the landscape in an insidious mist that robs both Britons and Saxons of their memories. Along the travel of Axel and Beatrice, she finds a wandering Saxon warrior a fierce boy afflicted with a mysterious animal bite, and Gawain, the nephew of King Arthur, who is searching for the she-dragon. Does this sound like a realistic uh, Henry James-style novel to you, either of you? Or does it strike you as perhaps maybe just a little bit, just a, just a touch of fantasy? Maybe just, just a bit of sort of touching on the main... I mean, what garbage. And that's an example of what I think mainstream novelists think fantasy is. I think they think, lots of them do, that fantasy is this blatant, like, I just go into this place and shut my brain off and pretend that I'm, you know, romping through, you know, Middle Earth, pretending I'm an elf or a dwarf, and don't ever consider the ways in which that and many other fantasy books are right back talking about specific issues in the present day, in our present world, but looking at them slant, right, as opposed to sort of straight on. I mean, piggyback so, on so that she got really hammered, quickly. by the way, on Twitter. Uh, there was a lot of people just saying, hashtag, uh, totally not fantasy. And then we're writing all these books. You know, my book, like these fantasy novelists from like, my book is an economics treatise clearly about, um, you know, Anne Randian theories of blah, 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 blah. Hashtag totally not fantasy. You know, anyway, sorry. Uh, amazing stuff, though. Uh, I was going to say to piggyback on that really quickly. Um, last, So, you know, I'm on two fantasy themed improv teams, one of which is called uh, Drunkards and Dragons, which presents... A very medieval take on yeah. improv, and we're all doing costume. And the other one's called uh, one's basically Harry Potter improv, which takes place within the world of Harry Potter. Those are two um, credit, by the way. Both of those. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we are in the midst of this run uh, in this improv cage match called the Cherry Crush, which happens every Monday. Where we, as long as you keep winning, meaning the audience votes for you at the end of the show, you get to return the next week. So last week. Uh, I think the theater tried to assassinate our team because we had won 14 in a row and the theater didn't like the, uh, the how big the houses were typically when we were winning. They wanted a full house and it was never totally full. Right. And so they resurrected this old champion team that had previously set the record for the most wins in a row. where They'd won like 23, 24 in a row. And they didn't tell us that we were going up against this team. We found out via a leak like about three hours before the show and, you know, emergency scrambled to bring our friends on board and get people into the theater. And then there was this epic uh, improv match that was about to happen. And so the our show, um, which on its surface, we, the suggestion that we got was something to the effect of, of like the the tip of the mountain or something like that. And in the development of the show, um, in the opening, we talked a little bit about how the ice caps on this mountain were melting. And there was, like, a notion of, like, is it a myth or is it really happening? And then, like, the most poignant scene after we went through, you know, a couple different uh, versions of characters that lived in this world who were just sort of distracted by other things, um, I basically had a debate with one of my improv partners uh, in the guise of I was an alchemist and he was the archmage and I was trying to convince him that the ice caps were actually melting. Nice. And I was, like, giving him the evidence that, like, I've scried for many weeks and I see 
the difference in the ice caps and all this stuff. And the reason that, like, ultimately it was such an effective scene, like, in addition to just that, you know, we both developed our characters within the scene and we became real people, was that it was also a political discussion, you know, under the guise of, of this fantasy fun improv show. Wait, I don't see responded it. Explain. To that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, right, exactly. And I'm preaching to the choir here. Like, I was thinking about this earlier with, with you, Story, like, Watership Down. A right. tremendous novel. Oh, all yeah. by, by the way, all takes place about rabbits and right. crows and, you right. know, but right. brilliant, brilliant work. I mean, like, so just it's just example after example. I think it's obvious. Um, but I mean, like, and also I had noticed another reference. Someone made the example of Flowers for Algernon, first published in a science fiction magazine before, you know, it, it kind of, in quotes, grew up and became a, we sort of drained it of its science fiction because God forbid we throw that on there. But so, I mean, for one thing, that's an, yeah, that's interesting, Russ, because you're right. Of course, that's exactly what fantasy does. And um, I will admit to being passionate about it since I write it. But to bring it back to the escapist point, I think I think that's it. Like, I think sometimes you can get lost in it, but I don't particularly enjoy the experience of losing control in that way. I, I don't really enjoy that. I like enjoying feeling I do get drawn into characters and I do get drawn into their stories. Um, and I think it may just be because a lot of these things work too well that I don't want it to function on that level for me. It's like the reason I don't like horror mm. movies is not because I, you know, I find them abhorrent. The reason I don't like horror movies or, or even sad, I don't particularly like sad movies is because I don't like being super sad. You know, I mean, like I, I, I certainly can be and it's, you know, it's fine, but it's like it's not it, it does its job. Like horror movies freak me out. So they do their job and mm -hmm. I don't like to be freaked out. And so it's like it, they work very well. They're very effective. And, you know, I am I am an audience that's very receptive to it. And as a consequence, I just don't I don't particularly care for that. Um, and so I don't know. It's like when it comes to that sort of thing, I don't I don't like being sort of sort of almost trapped in in that world that I wouldn't willingly be in, if that makes any sense. I would um, say that's so. the number one reason I consume art. I actually had this discussion with a couple of people a couple months ago of like, why do you consume art? And I don't put escapism. It's because it, it's funny because I think I'm like sort of squarely in the middle of all of this because I do not put escapism on my list at all of why I read or why I watch movies or anything like escapism does not particularly interest me. But I am very, very, very into losing myself within the world that's being presented and being totally immersed, which is why I love movies and don't really care for TV. And I prefer to watch movies in the theaters if I'm going to watch movies rather than um, at home because it's just all of that aids the immersive experience. And That's it's so entirely funny. because I want to relate. I want to have the feeling of empathizing. Like the entire point of art is to bridge the divide of you are trapped in your body and I'm trapped in my body and we're not actually having the same experiences. And really immersive art bridges that gap and huh. gets you into out of your own head and into the head of somebody else and into the emotions more importantly of somebody else and what their actual experience is. So I like it's the one area because generally we agree like we don't like chemical experiences and losing control in that way, but it's the one area where you know, I still have all of my faculties, I still have all of my senses, but I am ceding control to the artist to let them um, show me an experience because the experience is their testimony of what it's like to be them or what it's like to be a fictive person that they've huh. created. And that experience is, you know, one of the most powerful and enjoyable, consistent experiences that I can get on this planet. So that's interesting. And you know, it's funny. I, we have to, we're going to have to wrap here in a sec. I, sure. It's interesting though, because 
live theater i i but see i do really enjoy live theater and i don't it's mm-hmm. weird because it's like you would think that i would have a similar but i don't though i mean i enjoy i enjoy live theater i i, I really do i like i, I mm-hmm. find, you know i don't i don't shy away from it again i don't particularly like super violent theater but i don't right it, it but sort of the nature of it is that it doesn't do that sort of thing that often and i still enjoy the kind of experience of being live and in person and feeling the energy in the room and i don't know uh, something about the shared experience of what's happening on stage. So I feel like I connect just fine to the stuff that I'm watching, reading or whatever else, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't like having my control seized from me is sort of what it feels like. I I would argue though that live theater, I think for a couple of reasons is in some ways a little bit less immersive by its nature, just because of the sort of, I don't know, I guess competing with movies, maybe it's hard, but I feel like movies, theater is very limited in terms of its parameters of what it can do or where it can take you, like, because you have live actors in that situation, they're all stuck on the stage in one particular situation, so they're not going to do anything that's necessarily, like, too crazy or too out there, and I know modern theater is sort of pushing the bounds of that a little bit, but... um, but I think it's easiest to remember, like on average, it's easiest to remember that you're in the chair and that these people are not real in live theater. Right. Um, as opposed to something that's a movie where like the screen is more, I don't know. I, I, I can't really explain why I think the screen takes you in more than the stage, but I, I feel like I, I think, does. I think there's some, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, uh, but yeah, it's, um, that's wow. That's really interesting. All of a sudden, this got yeah. very serious. Sorry, everyone, but we were this is an interesting discussion, so we we're just having fun with it. Because um, we do that. How we do that's like we like Tilda. It's us and Tilda. We just have fun <laughs> with the serious. That's how that's how we roll. Um, can I uh, can I drop an announcement on you guys before we wrap here? Yeah. Uh, the announcement is since we're speaking about immersion, if you want to be immersed in the same way uh, next year, if uh, you are interested, you may be able to do so from one of your intrepid MEP reporters because I have signed a three book deal with the Ed Greenwood Group, which is a Canadian publisher, to um, write my, to publish my Grey Assassin trilogy um, coming out in 2016, 17, and 18. So that has happened. I have uh, signed a three-book deal, and if you guys are interested, you will be able to find links possibly on the MepReport site and my own personal site as well. So just letting you know, um, it's not going to be out for a while, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's happened, and I was really excited about it. And um, since we're talking about fantasy, um, you yeah. too can be immersed with Greg, awesome. will your books be available for purchase by Mepcoin? Uh, y- you know what? It's funny you mention that because they are going to be available in not just collector's hardcover, but also ebook. And my assumption is that since the Canadians are much more kind of, uh, you know, just sort of generally kind of friendly and relaxed about things, I can't see any reason why you wouldn't be able to do that in some in some fashion. I don't know how. Honestly, and I'm sure at the moment um, my publisher is literally preparing to leap out a window, um, hearing what I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> but um, but I'm sure that it's possible, and I will commit us to making that possible, even though I'm sure it isn't. So sure. <laughs> yes. Will people be able to read your books purely for escapism? No, they must read it with both escapist <laughs> tendencies and understanding that sometimes a religious assassin who's like Jason Bourne but trained in 13th century Rome in the ways of sonic magic, that has real-world implications, people. So you just keep that in mind. There is, a, there is a mirror being held up to society here as well. That said, I'd like to think there's a lot of badass scenes that allow you to escape into someone who's a badass. So, mm, Sonic you know. magic. It's as if... 
the sounds made by the old world dogmas of religion are destroying <laughs> the ears of yes. the believers. His his finishing move is called the Karl Marx, and he no, that's not he's making that up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, but yes, so awesome. Um, yes, so I'm very excited Great. about that. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to uh, let everybody know, and um, I wanted to let everyone know that, and uh, also let everyone know that it uh, we've come to the end of an hour, actually past an hour, and although this was a show that was a little bit discombobulated because of uh, Russ turning into Robot Man, I feel like um, we covered a lot of good ground, guys. I feel like we addressed some good stuff. And we got to talk about movies and immersion. And we did a typical MEP wandering, you know, point, which is like what we do here. So good job. You, you don't cover the whole continent of Australia by not wandering. That <laughs> That's right. We, were, we, we take our cues straight from the emu. The MEP Report is a podcast walkabout. If you want to know more about us, check us out at themepreport.com. Also, make sure to uh, send us some feedback if you're interested in finding out what we thought about other forms of immersion. You know, um, serial TV shows, things like that. Um, I will immerse myself in your email. Uh, Russ will read it only to escape from his current life. And Greg <laughs> will not take it too seriously, but will analyze it. I will you. analyze it and I will do so with yeah. my bright lights in my office while I'm listening to sports radio, just in case. Exactly. <laughs> if, if you have an ultra violent email, send it to me. So that yeah, can, only yeah, exactly. to Russ, please. I can and live I'll vicariously. I'll peek yeah. at the salient points and we'll hide it from Greg. I thought the email was a little bit over the top and didn't need to express this. Russ is like, no, but don't you understand how amazing it was when that email made this point? It was so great. It was com commenting on all of society. And I'll be like, yeah, I um, just summarize the email for me if you wouldn't mind. That would be that'd be great. I think I just discovered that the reason that I'm so desperate to ingest all of this ultraviolence and feeling and immersion is because I am Robot Man and I need these feelings. I do not have them. <laughs> You had to find out eventually. <laughs> oh, man. And I thought Greg's announcement was the biggest news we've ever <laughs> I am robot. Uh, say goodbye, everybody. Oh, man. Ch are you chappy? You're chappy. I have so you? many questions now. <laughs> How can we say goodbye? Who is Cliffhanger. Russ? Tune in next week. Russ is like zero one one zero one one zero. <laughs> Does this travel mask make me more human? How about this one? <laughs> Well, the last time I saw old man he knew him better did da da da. He was chasing a female he knew him better did da da da. As he shot past, I heard him say, "She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo." But I don't She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she could run the pits of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, ba da 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 da. Thrush can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, ba da 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 da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can round the pits on the kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, It's true, um, ba da 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 da. Ah! <laughs>